And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you're like me and you're driving your car on Saturday, you try and time your trip to hear Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. It's a hilarious, satirical game show that looks at the news and generally devolves into riotous improvisation. And the ringmaster of all of that is Peter Sagal. Peter's had a remarkable career as a playwright, as a comic, and as an author. His latest book is called The Incomplete Book of Running. It's a satirical look at his passion for running, but it's also an interesting look at his life and his struggles with depression. Peter Sagal's a fascinating guy, as you will hear in this conversation. Peter Sagal, it's great to see you. Nice to see you, too. Um, so you're from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. And from a kind of your typical yes. Jewish Jersey Jewish, family. Jewish. My, my family, half my family comes from Jersey City. Really? See, I, um, I knew that you grew up in, uh, what was the name? Like, Stuyvesant Town. Stuyvesant yeah, Town, in New yeah. York, yeah. I've heard the stories, yeah. yeah. I, I, used to, I used to see it on our occasional visits into the city. My grandfather, who was an immigrant from Russia, was an Orthodox Jew. Yeah. And uh, they lived in Jersey City. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time over there, going to Greenspan's Deli. In Jer- I mark my... All my all these landmarks in my life by the delis. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I could talk to you. Basically, I don't remember anything I've done, but I can remember pretty much everywhere I've eaten. <laughs> so, uh, tell me about your 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 family and and first of all, when did they come over here? My, for all I know, my grandfather was in the same boat as yours, um, literally. Uh, I come from almost entirely Russian Jewish stock who all came over um, on to various ports of call: Boston, Philadelphia, one through Ellis Island. My Paternal grandmother's um, family was German Jewish, right? And isn't I, I understand the story is they all got here in the 19th century and looked down their fairly mm-hmm. large noses <laughs> at the at the newly arrived Russians who they Only thought one were more. Jew could say that to him. Exactly, I know. We, we're gonna we're gonna engage in all kind of casual slanders probably, that we can get away. The ADL with. is probably gonna ban. <laughs> I know. Show. I know. But yes, she was a Kirschenbaum. She was a German Jew, and she apparently was connected uh, to the. I, I only have the vaguest notions, like to the socialist politics of the 1920s. Her her parents were into that, but um, she married a, a, a nice man named Simon Malkin, who turned out not to be a very nice man, and uh, cheesed out, ran off with a with a floozy of some kind, and disappeared from the earth. Hmm. My father, who's still with us at the age of uh, 82, uh, has spent some time trying to track him down. And has never, done, never, never, did, never no. did. So for all I know, he has half-siblings somewhere in the world, and I have cousins, but no one will ever know. Huh. It was very strange. I ran into somebody who was a cousin who I hadn't met for years, and he had a picture. I'd never seen a picture of this guy, my actual paternal grandfather. And it was freaky because I looked just like him. Really? Yeah, I know. It was a little that weird. is freaky. Yeah. So my father was adopted by another uh, nice Jewish man named Mark Sagel, who married my grandmother, adopted him, changed his name to Sagel. And uh, raised him in a fairly unusual way for uh, Jewish people of that generation because uh, he, my adopted paternal grandfather, was an engineer and managed to get an engineering degree from Cornell in the 20s, which wasn't easy, I think, for Jews at that time. And so I I write about this in my book. I just can't get over how strange this must have been. My grandfather was growing up in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. 
yes. which to this day, my father cannot believe people want to live there. I took him there once. And Made he's like, famous by Lee J. Cobb and On the Water. Exactly. Remember, you roughed up that guy and said, you come from Greenpoint, go back to Greenpoint. Exactly. You don't work here no more. My father's generation were like, how the hell do we get out of Greenpoint? And now all these hipsters are trying to get into Greenpoint. He can't, he can't get over it. At any rate. And he was, his, his mother remarried, Mark Sagal, and he immediately transported them to Highland Park, Dallas, Texas. Have you ever been to Highland Park? I have to confess, I don't think I have. Yeah, Highland Park is where, among many other people, George W. Bush lives now. It, right. is, it, it was the suburb of Dallas that was uh, populated by, um, by the oilmen and their attractive wives and even more attractive children. So if you look at the, uh, and I have the, the high school yearbook for my father, Highland Park High, it has all these tall, mostly blonde, mostly perfect you know, oilmen's kids, cheerleaders, the, the, the football players. I think they were so all like cheerleaders. It's like one of these, which one of these doesn't belong. Yes, and then there's this like little Matty Sagal with his horn-rimmed glasses <laughs> and his hair remaining at that time. So I wonder, I wonder how that worked out for him. But he's, he's, he still has a certain loyalty to Texas. He's a nice man. And um, you, you, it was kind of a family of high achievers, I I read that you uh, knew from the time you were five that you wanted to go to Harvard. That is a that is an that is a, an embarrassing story. It was more that my mother, who grew up in Cambridge, her father, my grandfather, this is the other side of the family, had a grocery store in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Evergood Market. For those of you who may have shopped in that section of Cambridge, and um, if I'm not mistaken. I might have discussed this briefly once in the one time I met him in person with your former boss, Mr. Obama, because he was a Harvard Law School student. They used to come over and get their, get their snacks from us. Um, he, ran that story for, he ran that story for 40 years in the shadow of Harvard. And his daughter, my, my mother, went to Harvard School of Education, got her master's. And so for her, her dream was to have a child who, uh, who went to Harvard. And so as soon as I evidenced some mental acuity at the age of four, you know, like I would pick my nose but not eat it. It was like that level. <laughs> she decided that this one was going to go to Harvard. That's so I was, all it takes, huh? I was brought up to believe that I was, I was supposed to do that. And it is a great shame to me that I did not manage to rebel and did what she wanted. But I was an obedient child. Uh, and we, we, you, your brother is a rabbi. He is. So your family was, you know, I, I really, I, I read a few of your comments about your upbringing and yes. I really related to them because um, I have this sort of uh, approach aversion uh, relationship with Judaism in part because it was compulsory. Oh, yes. And um, the spiritual elements of it were sort of lost on me, but the compulsory elements were very clear. Yes. Well, what do you mean by compulsory elements? It was like you're going because uh, because we're Jewish and this is what Jews do. Right. And what would the Gentiles think if you're not in synagogue on Saturday? It would be a for the goyim. Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. Th so. This is something that I find that non-Jews don't understand. <clears throat> in that you say to the people, "Well, I'm Jewish." They say, "Well, do you go to synagogue?" Well, no. Do you believe in God? Well, well. I love, I how love are you your, your, your line on this. Sagal considers himself religiously agnostic or, quote, what an atheist calls himself if he's afraid God will get mad at exactly. him. Exactly. I mean, we're all, we're all, we're all, all want to hedge our bets, I think. But it is, it is strangely true that we can, we can eschew the religious uh, ceremony <clears throat> and, and yet still profoundly identify as Jews. Yeah. You, um, uh, you went to Harvard. I did. In, 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 uh, uh, oh, uh, I obedience. Obedient. I yeah. was an obedient child to the last. Yes. 
Um, well, before I get to the Harvard experience, you, you became a theater person in high school. Yeah, uh, I was, I, I, I sort of recently figured this out. I, I was, uh, I don't, I don't uh, at a certain point, I'm sure you'll stop relating, but the, I was a socially awkward kid. I, I didn't know how to sort of manage sort of just people around me. I don't know why exactly. But I found, like a lot of kids in my situation, um, that theater was a way of managing that because theater was a way of being in front of people with instructions. Yeah, you know, this is so interesting to me. Uh, I heard Jerry Seinfeld say once recently that the only place he actually feels comfortable is on a stage. Right. Which isn't uh, a healthy thing when you think about it. No, it's not. No, during the course of this conversation, I want to talk to you a little (laughs) bit about that and about comics generally who are hilarious on stage and often have sort of broken lives. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to know why, but w- w- let me just defer that uh, for a second. Um, and so you, the, so theater was a place where you, you felt comfortable. Absolutely. I mean, because like I said, I mean, it was clear what you were supposed to do. You just memorize what you're supposed to say. And if you say them with the appropriate uh, emphasis and emotional commitment, people will people will enjoy it. And when you went to Harvard, was it with the intent of pursuing theater? I, weirdly, uh, yes. But my main thing was I was intent on being coming. I guess I can confess this now. It's been long enough. My intent was to be part of the Harvard Lampoon. And they rejected you. Completely. Twice, no less. How do you get rejected from the Harvard Lampoon? Uh, you submit your... They, they, Harvard has its weird traditions, and one of them is called a comp. Uh, most universities, most normal universities, if you would like to do something, you can go do it. They appreciate your enthusiasm. At Harvard, oh no, it wasn't enough to compete to get in. You have to compete to do the extracurricular activity. So with Harvard Lampoon, so with many other things, you have to audition. You have to write material and go through a, a series of judgments. And I was found wanting. So there's a there's painful pain. It was yeah. It was a little. I got to tell you, I I, 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 it may be a little emotional. Yeah, it was very painful because that's what I was going to do. One of the things that I am familiar with is a lot of my peers in my business grew up watching David Letterman or stand ups. Mm -hmm. I didn't. My thing was the was the comedy writers. Like I worshipped Henry Beard and Doug Kenny, who had been part of the Harvard Lampoon and founded the National Lampoon. I worshipped uh, people like Woody Allen and S.J. Perelman, all the great mm-hmm. comedy writers. And that's what I thought I was going to be. And I thought I was going to go to the Harvard Lampoon and I was going to do that with them as part of that tradition. And they had other ideas. Now, uh, one of the big players in the Lampoon at the time, because I find in reading your history that you have a Zelig-like quality I to you. I keep showing up. Yeah. I know. It's, it's rather one odd. was Conan O'Brien. I knew Conan O'Brien in college. Uh, he was, at that time, the president of the Harvard Lampoon. and So he was responsible for this indignity. He, he might have, in fact, been the guy who, like, this, you know, maybe this my entire career is, is a weird kind of vengeance on... Uh, <laughs> On Conan O'Brien, although I think if it's more a vengeance on Alex Trebek after I lost on Jeopardy, but you know, I I uh, yeah, I, I wanted know. to get to that as well. <laughs> there are so many Zelig moments. I know, but you uh, you organized uh, uh, something else called the Penny Packer Visiting Speakers. You have committee. done your research. Yes, this was this was very strange. So. Harvard, as most people think of, is this beautiful Harvard yard with its ivy-covered buildings covered in ivy and history. From the, that's what the visible eye would. The visible eye would, but 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 there and and traditionally the the freshmen at Harvard get to live there, so they get to sort of like immerse themselves in this in this 
centuries-old uh, academic glory, but there are too many freshmen. So some of us get stuck out in what were called at that time the Union dorms, which were these horrible old apartment buildings that were bought for, like, overflow. It was like the Harvard equivalent of refugee housing. It wasn't good. <laughs> and we were so bitter that we decided to do something about it. And when I say we, I mean myself and my then roommate and continues to be my closest friend, Jess Braven, who has made a name for himself as the Supreme Court reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Right. Busy and now, I bet. He is. He is extraordinary. Yeah, it's hard to get him on the phone these days. Um, and we decided that we would uh, try to get some vengeance or at least some recompense out of this humiliation of being put out in these you know, satellite housing by trying to take advantage of Harvard's name. And we decided that we would use Harvard's name to invite somebody we wanted to meet. So we invented the name of the dilapidated apartment building was Pennypacker Hall. So we called ourselves the Pennypacker Speakers Bureau and invited. What's weird about this is who we chose to invite. Burt Ward. Yes. And why Burt Ward? Burt Ward, as you may know, it was the actor. I was, who, a, in, I was a huge fan of Batman oh gosh. in the 60s. Yeah. Whack, pow, yeah. zap. He played Robin. Yes. And the, the thing I don't understand is why didn't th we think we were worthy enough to get Adam West? But no, we went right for Robin. Who played Batman. Yes, I know. Uh, and who eventually I got to interview on my show, so everything comes around. But uh, Burt Ward, it turns out, was, um, was uh, at that time deciding, after however many years, it was time for his comeback. He was going to, he was going to, you know. Cause he How big is the market for Robin? Well... Robin, I think, has had a sort of uh, he's he's been he's been popular. Burt Ward, though, <laughs> pretty much had one job, and Burt Ward came out, and and so our invitation arrived, and he was like, "Yes, this is going to be the key to my comeback." And and I have very specific memories of Burt Ward's visit. One of him was getting off the plane. We had you know we were like these Harvard undergraduates. We'd put on our little blazers and ties, and we were standing there waiting to meet Mr. Ward. And he cut off the plane, and he looked around, and he said, "Where are they?" And we said, where are who, Mr. Ward? And he said, where's the press? I was told there'd be press meeting me at the plane. And he immediately got on a phone, a payphone. This was way back in the prehistoric era, and called his publicist and proceeded to shout at that person for a good 10 minutes about the fact that there was no press. And so Burt Ward, I guess I can say this now, it's been a long time, was a real kind jerk. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was not a pleasant guy. He also visited our, um, our, our dorm, our room in Pennypacker, went into the bathroom, and, and did something so toxic in there that nobody could enter the bathroom for a good... <laughs> I can tell this now. Nobody here knows Burt Ward. Yes, but it was, it, so it was an interesting thing. And, and then, of course, it all came together because we were doing this... He did this public presentation to the students at Harvard. And the students at Harvard were actually very excited about this because Harvard was somewhat stuffy and the people we got were like Nobel Prize winners and so on and so forth. And nobody got anybody who the students would actually want to hear from. speak firsthand about the Joker and the Riddler. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he, he actually, for all his personal flaws, did a great presentation. And one of the things he displayed was the original or one of the original Robin costumes. And he had it on a, on a, um, on a mannequin. And during his presentation... <laughs> You were raided. Yes. A security guard leapt up uh, and said, no, actually, no, I believe it was Conan O'Brien himself leapt up in the audience and said, riddle me this, Robin, when is a security guard not a security guard? At which point the two security guards who nobody had arranged for grabbed the costume and ran out. And I chased them. And I did something that I have never done before and have never had occasion to do since that day is I tackled him <laughs> like a really good open field 
tackle brought him down while his while his while his <laughs> accomplice ran off. I got the wrong guy. His accomplice ran off. Shouldn't Robin hospital. be doing this? You'd think. Yeah. And I said something to that guy. I said, you don't understand. That man is an asshole. <laughs> He's not going to find this funny. And the guy said, don't worry, don't worry. It's a prank. We'll give it back to him. And they did. And, Bert, and we had to deal with Burt Ward being very upset. But he eventually played along with the prank. And so all went well. so how, how did the Jeopardy thing happen? Oh, the Jeopardy thing. So the Jeopardy thing happened because I decided, long story, that I was going to go out to L.A. after college. This was just when a lot of Harvard people were heading out to L.A. to sort of write TV. This was Mm -hmm. the start of that wave. And a lot of those people who went out that time um, ended up doing things like creating shows like News Radio and creating The Simpsons, which Conan O'Brien wrote for. And I decided to be part of that wave. And so uh, it didn't work out for me so fantastically well as it did for Mr. O'Brien and many others. But I did uh, run into somebody who had been on Jeopardy and said, you should try out for this. And I tried out for Jeopardy. And I was accepted. And I went on Jeopardy in 1988. And uh, I remember... You know, you do these interviews, and then Alex Trebek uses these interviews. And uh, he said uh, to me, well, Mr. Peter Sagal, uh, so I understand you're a writer. And I said, yes, that was my ambition. And he said, uh, well, that's pretty hard. How are you doing? And I looked at him, and I said, because basically I was doing terribly. I had, had achieved nothing, had met nobody, had made no money. And so I said, well, I'm appearing on Jeopardy. <laughs> At that point, my score was minus $200, and he said, you know, that little thing in the front should be a plus sign. And I said, thanks. Thanks a lot. And that was my interaction with Alex Trebek. And, and I you walked away with some I walked around, prizes, I walked. Right? I lost. Um, uh, for those of you who are Jeopardy aficionados, I had a problem with the timing of the buzzer. Of course. But... Uh, I did get a lot of stuff. This was back in the era where they gave you lots of door prizes, going away prizes. And so I got all kinds of things. I remember one day I was walking down the street and an 18-wheeler pulled up. This was two weeks later. And the guy said, are you Peter Sagal? And I said, yes. And he said, I have something for you. And he got out of, he pulled over the 18-wheeler, walked to the back, opened up the, the refrigerated you know, compartment, reached in and gave me a box of chocolate. That's what you of, got. That's what I got. From Jeopardy. And then the guy back, like a small box of chocolate, and, I, and then the guy <laughs> drove away. Actually, I have a chair to this day that I won on Jeopardy that I've kept with me all those years. You 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 ended up not necessarily writing comedic stuff. You you became you took a crack at being a serious playwright, I, and you had yeah, some I critical did. success. I did. I I well, what happened was I had always been involved in the theater. But I never assumed this. I had sort of absorbed this from my parents, that I, you can't make a living in the theater. What kind of job is that for a nice Jewish boy? Uh, and I kind of absorbed that. But nonetheless, when I was sitting around waiting for Hollywood stardom to somehow find me, I decided I'd do something I enjoyed, and what do I enjoy? So I wrote to some theaters and got a job and ended up working at a theater in downtown L.A. called the Los Angeles Theater Center, uh, where I w- because they were poorly managed, they gave somebody like me who had no experience and qualifications a lot of responsibility to find new plays. So I met all these playwrights. Uh, Donald Margulies, Tony Kushner, who went on, of course, to be justly famous, Paula Vogel. And uh, I became inspired to try it myself. And I started writing serious plays and and ended up quitting my job to do that and won some fellowships and ended up getting some some productions, including um, at the Long Wharf Theater in Connecticut and various commissions and was actually doing okay. You wrote a, a play called Denial. I did. About a Jewish lawyer defending a Holocaust. I did do that. Denier. Yeah. What, what inspired you? Uh, 
Well, uh, like a lot of things, it was a series of events. Uh, one of them was reading a news story about a, an African-American lawyer who had, a civil rights lawyer who had defended a Klansman uh, against some unfair charges, which he did in the course of his day. Another was um, the movie Schindler's List had just come out. This was early 90s. And I was really struck by how, and maybe you'll, you'll, you'll understand this as well from your background, how central the Holocaust was to modern Jewish self-worth in a weird way. Because one of the things that I noted at the time was that um, we Jews, as we've already evidenced, can like blithely laugh off most anti-Semitic smears, right? You know, like, oh yes, yeah, we run the world. You know, have you been, uh, you know, we're having a bake sale for the world Jewish conspiracy. Really? I mean, we just like, fine, whatever. But um, if you start saying that this extraordinarily horrible thing that happened to us didn't happen, we will get very, very angry. And I, I just started wondering, why would that be? I mean, if you want to assault and insult black people, you don't go on about how slavery didn't happen. That's, I mean, it's ridiculous. You say other things. And same with any other ethnic group you want to slander or hurt. But with Jews, it, we just hold this, this historical event so central to our identity. Why do they hurt us so much? Why do they, the anti-Semites, Nazi sympathizers, know that that's how to get us? And uh, I really became interested in that. And so I wrote a play about one. Uh, I, had to, I had to research uh, more than was good for my mental health, these people who actually do it, including a guy who is a fairly notorious figure here in Chicago, um, a professor at Northwestern, whose name I won't mention, who wrote a book called The Hoax of the 20th Century, taught at Northwestern for many, many years. Uh, a, a required course in electrical engineering that everybody who wanted to do computers had to take. And he wrote this book explaining why the Holocaust didn't happen after he got tenure. And Northwestern couldn't get rid of him because of academic freedom. And so for many, many years, people would go and take his class knowing who he was and know what he did. But uh, he knew that the second he mentioned anything about this in, in class, he'd be fired. So he was this weird presence. Every now and then, a president or academic at Northwestern would condemn him, but they couldn't do anything about him. And that whole particular saga came when he, the person on whom I had based my central character, actually saw the play when it was produced here in Chicago. And he blogged about it. And uh, that was weird. Yeah. And uh, he thought I, that I, uh, I, I captured some of his arguments well, but he also felt that I had not given him enough uh, respect. What do you think about what you see today? Because That is an interesting question. A Holocaust denying is coming back Not just Holocaust. And neo-Nazism oh, yes. and so it's on. All, it's all, it, yeah, I was, I, it's like I'm a hipster. Oh, yes, I was into that before it was cool. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about that is Holocaust denial is a conspiracy theory, uh, like many other conspiracy theory, and it has certain things in common. And I thought it was really interesting at the time just to learn how conspiracy theorists think. I never understood that would be central in understanding American politics how conspiracy theories work, what psychological benefit they provide the people who are promulgating them. It's, a, it's very, I could go on about this, but it's very briefly, it's a way, if you feel weak, if you feel powerless, if you feel beset by forces you don't understand, it's a way of turning the tables, of making yourself, instead of the, 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 the helpless victim of forces you don't like, modernization, the Jews, whoever, climate scientists, it's a way of turning the tables and making yourself the powerful one because you're the one who perceives the truth. And that, I think, is something... Central to Nazism in, in the first instance was the key. 
right. to Hitler. Exactly. And what, what all of those people do is they believe that they're not being evil. They're just taking a necessary step to prevent a greater evil from having its way. And uh, what's weird is to see, to make it contemporary, is to see that kind of weird expression of weakness being adopted by the most powerful human being on the planet. But that, that's beyond my ability. I didn't take any What do you think the classes. impact of that is? I think that it, uh, it's not good. Um, I think that those theories, as you can see, are really attractive uh, to people. And we do live in times of revolutionary change that the technology has wrought, right. uh, demographic change. I mean, the conditions are there for this kind of Absolutely. manipulation. And, and one of the things, of course, that's happened is not just that technology has been made of, made, I mean, you no longer have to mimeograph stuff and post it to, you know, uh, telephone poles anymore. You know, you can put it on a blog and everybody will see it or on Facebook. But not only that, it's also been monetized, you know, right. because, you know, the John Birch Society, for all, their, for all their success, never made a lot of money. They never figured out how to, like, make a living from promulgating their lies. But it turns out that it's a successful business model. Yeah. And that, I think, is as much as a root of our problems as, as any other part of psychology. I think that one of the challenges is um, not just to focus on those who are exploiting these feelings, but also on the conditions that that led people to respond to them. Yes. And uh, if you don't respond to those things, you're, you're helping cultivate this kind of environment. Talk to me about your show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You, yes. you were initially invited not as the host, nope. but as a, as a guest. I was. I, the a show, panelist, I guess. The show was invented. It was a corporate product by NPR in the early to mid-90s. They felt they needed something for people to listen to on the weekends that wasn't a news program, but that would appeal to people who liked news programs. Because people like that, people like us, people like me, are the primary listeners to public radio. Give us something that we can enjoy on the weekends. And they said, okay, about a news quiz. And they brought in Doug Berman, uh, who had produced Car Talk, the most successful poem, public radio. And they cast a wide net for interesting panelists. And they somehow found me, uh, at that time living as a playwright in Brooklyn. And I auditioned and was uh, cast, if you will, as a panelist. And the show went on the air. It was originally based here in Chicago. At who WB. was the host then? A gentleman named Dan Coffey, who had a perfect resume for the job. He had been a part of a sketch comedy group. He had been on public radio. He was a funny, charming guy. But it didn't work. It was not a successful match. And so the show went on the air, and uh, it wasn't doing well. And public radio is a very conservative culture. And I mean that, of course, not so much politically as yes, kind of— Yes, that would surprise yeah, people. Yeah, I know. I know. You'd be surprised. But it, they don't like change, public yeah. radio. It's why uh, Garrison Keillor did his show for 40 years. It's why Car Talk continued after one of its hosts died. It's just not a culture that likes change. And all of a sudden, we showed up. We displaced other shows people liked. People were very, very unhappy with us, and so things were not going well, and uh, in a desperation move, uh, Berman and the other producers said, well, the Sagal guy, he seems hosty, and they called me up, and they said, how'd you like trying to be the host of the show, and I said, sure, and that was 20 years ago, and here we are. And you moved to Chicago moved to, to Chicago it? from New York at the time. Uh, my then wife and I had just had our first child, who's now a junior at the University of Chicago, and uh we, she, I should say, really didn't want to raise a child in New York City because, as you know, what happens to children raised in New York City? They moved to of, Chicago. Exactly. Yeah. Why not get a jump on it right. and get out there quickly? <laughs> and so that seemed like a good move for us, and it was. Uh, and talk to me about the show itself. It, you know, 
it has the feel of improvisation. It, yeah. But I have the sense that there's an awful lot of preparation for it. What we, the way I like to put it is we prepare all week to be unprepared. Um, so we have a staff, uh, including your friend and mine, Lillian King, yes. as well as some other very talented producers and writers. And we spend all week um, researching and writing and pitching stories to other. Oh, there's this goofy story, or there's that goofy story. Or we can make fun of this, or we can make fun of that. My job has evolved to be the guy who's sort of taking the point on the major news stories. So I'm the guy who's saying, okay, what are we going to say about, oh, back in the old days, you know, the State of the Union or the election coming up or some candidate and trying to figure out what we're going to do at the top of the show. But we all do this together. We, 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 we pitch stories to each other. We start writing on Wednesday. We start writing jokes. I will write every week like a full page of Donald Trump jokes. If you've ever done comedy or been in a writer's room, you know that all the initial stuff gets thrown out and you start elaborating yeah. and choosing and, and changing. And a lot of times you have to do something. How many terrible. writers do you have? We all do it together. So it's a staff, depending on where we are at any given moment, it's five or six people. Mm -hmm. We're all doing it together. I'm one of that group. Um, and then we redo it and redo it. We rehearse it on Thursday with Bill Curtis. We try Old everything. Veteran. A veteran. Hall a, of a, Fame. A, veri a veritable yeah. demigod of broadcasting. And a great voice. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and then we finally come up with a script where we've got jokes we think we like and got subjects we think we like. And then we go into a, in front of a live audience, usually downtown Chicago, sometimes at places as, as you know, surprising as Tanglewood or... Uh, uh, Carnegie Hall as we mm -hmm. go in December um, uh, the Greek Theater in LA next week and we just s throw it at the panelists and see what happens and usually almost inevitably all the stuff we've prepared gets immediately thrown out because Paula Poundstone or Alonzo Bowden or somebody has a much better idea and we go with that and how much do you record and how much do you actually use of what you recorded? We broadcast about 54 minutes, and we usually we record a minimum of 90, sometimes as often yeah. as uh, two hours. Depends. If Paul is in the show, two hours. <laughs> it's just and, how it is. And you, and yeah, so you have a lot of edit, editorial options. We have a lot of editorial options, but we try to edit the show to, to, to capture the spontaneity because one of the things I think about a lot is if you watch the other people who do what we do, part of the satirical industrial complex. Uh, people like, say, Trevor Noah or, mm -hmm. uh, or Stephen Colbert or any of these people, they have an – or John Oliver may be the best example right now. They have a team of writers. They have a team of designers. They have a team of researchers, and they rehearse, and they write, and they create an incredibly precise 20 to however long bit of written produced comedy. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. We don't have the resources, and we wouldn't be able to compete if we did. Those guys are really, really good. What we do is we provide something different, which is an actual spontaneous event. I mean, the reason it, it sounds live is because it really is. Yeah. And when we edit the show, we edit to favor those moments, the stuff that nobody expected. So when you hear me cracking up at something somebody said, it's totally genuine. I had no idea they were going to say it. Do you, and, and do you enjoy it? I do. I mean, I was a theater kid and felt most at home doing live theater in front of an audience. And when I first started doing radio, I, got, I didn't know how to do it. I mean, uh, who are you talking to? How do you know if they like it? Um, Ira Glass used to um, gave me some very standard advice. Ira was at that time doing his show in Chicago, and he said, what you do is instead of thinking about the hundreds of thousands or millions of people, God forbid, who might be listening to you, just speak to one person. When you think about it, it makes sense. Yes. People who are listening to this presumably are by themselves in their car or wherever. But I couldn't like figure out who that one person was and if they were happy and what if they weren't and how do I get them back. I, just, I was a wreck. Put me in front of an audience who might laugh 
or not. And then I'm comfortable. Then I'm like, okay, I can, I can deal with that, uh, both in terms of getting reinforcement, in terms of, yes, this is working, and also guidance like, no, this is not working. Stop. Do something else. So uh, That's where having the 90 minutes is probably that's, helpful. Yeah. yeah. If it, we did a show. Uh, we don't do live radio. And a few times I've done live radio, I've found out why we don't do live radio. It's, <laughs> uh, it's scary. Um, you, you said that you write Trump jokes at the top, uh, but it must be different now. I mean, you must have to think through in this really caustic environment. Yes. How to approach humor. Yes. We, I think about that a lot. In fact, probably too much for my own good. Um, a lot of people have talked about like the role that humor and satire has played in our current moment. If we have any role, if we do any good. And I believe that in terms of actual political change or even changing of minds, we don't do any good. And I think it's the worst thing in the world to imagine that we do. Because if we start thinking that way, then we're going to sacrifice our primary mission, which is to be funny. Uh, there was this thing that happened that stuck in my mind on Saturday Night Live last year after it became clear that our dear president was watching and sort of hate watching Saturday Night Live. And they opened one night with a sketch in which Alec, Alex, um, you know, help me out, you know, him, the guy who plays Trump on, you know, he's famous, is part of a family of famous actors. Yeah. You know Alec who I Baldwin, mean? Thank yeah. you, Alec Baldwin. He's doing Trump. And in the sketch, he's addressing a bunch of coal miners. And these coal miners keep getting up and they keep saying things like, well, Mr. President, we need this and yet you're taking it away. And then Alec Baldwin would say something funny and say, yeah, but we need health care and your policies are... And it was interesting because it was so obvious that Saturday Night Live had realized that if Trump was watching, maybe they could convince him to do something. And that's death to comedy. If you think that you can have a real world, of, I mean, whatever that sketch was, it wasn't funny. Yeah. So I think it's really important for all of us to realize we're not changing anybody's mind. What our job is, is to make people feel better for however long we have their attention. And uh, Which may be more important now than ever. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, when we do our show, normally in our theater, we always meet anybody who wants to come up and say hello to us afterwards. Sometimes, you know, we'll hang out for as much as an hour. And people just constantly tell me, thank you, because, man, your show helps me get through the week or through the day. Sometimes it used to be when people told me that, oh, it's because they're going through a hard time politically, personally, maybe a divorce, maybe a job loss. Now it's they're getting through a hard time just reading the news. And they find our show to be a brief respite. And that's what we can do. You, you, you've done all these side projects while you do the show, uh, and you wrote a, uh, one of them was a book called The Book of Vice. I did write that. A catalog of uh, sinful, yes. uh, uh, sinful uh, activities yes. that people engage in. Yes. Uh, None of which this, I did, by this the way. Is, no, but obviously you were, it was a fact-finding thing. It was. Right? I, just, I, was yeah. I was out there for the people, trying yeah. to bring them the news. Yeah, and, they, and the people I'm sure appreciated. But... Uh, that was another Zelig moment it in retrospect. Was. So, because who was one of the people that you spoke with? One, I met, I wanted to write about the pornography industry, and I met a, a woman named Carly Milne, who was a publicist in that world. And she said, oh, Peter, this will be great for your book. I'm coming through Chicago with a tour of some women who have contributed to my book. Why don't you have dinner with me and some of these women? And these were women who were performers in the industry. And I said, great. And so I sat down there with uh, Nina Hartley, who's quite well known, another woman named Shane, who was quite well-known, and a third woman who I'd never heard of, but I was told was an up-and-coming person in the industry, and her name, of course, was Stormy Daniels. So I got to have dinner with Stormy Daniels. I think up-and-coming is the thing you want to yeah, say in the, that industry, I, but anyway, go Yeah, ahead. I know. Well, spelled, I'm spelling it the traditional way, so yes. it's, it's all okay. right. Um, and uh, she was, and I said this at the time, amazing. She was the funniest, 
smartest, most engaging storyteller. She had the table in in just in, in, in stitches because she was so great. And she talked about her upbringing in Louisiana and how she was poor and she says homely and she decided she was going to get out of there and get rich and she decided she was going to do it this way and how she was in control of her career and she told us stories and she, she was amazing. She told me a lot of stories that I couldn't repeat in the book uh, about various men she had encountered. And I was wondering... Was one of them Donald Trump? No, I looked that up and I... I we had our dinner seven months before she encountered Donald Trump in Lake Tahoe. I see. But when the news came out that Donald Trump had paid a particular adult film star uh, to uh, not to speak about their encounter and that her name was Stormy Daniels, born Stephanie Clifford, I said to myself, this is going to be good. And <laughs> it totally has. Yeah. And I don't think the story's over yet. No, 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 no. But uh, she is, yeah. If, she's, she's not the person you want to be talking about. Let me just say this. Given what she said about other gentlemen who she had encountered who were well-known to me at that private dinner, her recent comments about um, yeah, she's been quite descriptive. Yes, uh, her her invocation of Mario Kart and certain uh, <laughs> cryptozoological creatures. That's what you were going to get. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder if <laughs> you got to wonder <laughs> yeah. in this ongoing case what discovery is going to look like now that she's. I mean, there. Anyway, I know. So, uh, uh, Constitution USA. <laughs> yeah, I did a documentary. This actually was a tremendously exciting and fun thing for me. I was approached by a guy named Steve Ives, who had worked with Ken Burns, one of his sort of crew. He wanted to do a documentary about the Constitution for PBS. And the notion was most people think of civics in its boring it's boxes connected by arrows, judiciary and executive and legislative. It's pictures of old men, or rather antique men and wigs and tights handing each other documents and parchment. And they wanted to do something that was um, contemporary about like the Constitution today. So they put me on a Harley Davidson motorcycle and I rode around the country and I talked to people who were engaged in uh, current constitutional disputes, including some of the people who were involved in at that time the not yet successful fight for the recognition of same-sex marriage, including uh, Ted Olson and David Boyce, who were working. We met their mm -hmm. their their um, clients in the Prop A case in California. We met people who were working for uh, a guy named Steve D'Angelo, who was a cannabis activist. We met people who were involved in all kinds of interesting fights, gun activists and property rights activists, and it was just a fascinating and amazing time, and really sort of. I found it as educational, perhaps more so than I think the viewers did. I had always been vaguely interested and have become sort of a, a constitutional law fan. It's interesting because a, a number of the issues that you raised that you covered there have really evolved yes. now, but that's also part of this rapid change that's probably contributed to the environment that we see that Trump and others have explored yeah, I mean, the, well, the environment of change. One of the things that happened was, one of the reasons we were doing it, there was a lot of talk at that time, this was around the 2012 election, about co constitutional conservatism yes. and how we needed to get back to the Constitution. And that was a Tea Party rally. And um, we went to a Tea Party rally, Tea Party Express, up in Appleton, Wisconsin. And I think I can say at the distance of time, it was like the ugliest political event I've ever been to. It was a bunch of angry, generally older, exclusively white people who were furious because they felt uh, that their country had been taken away from them by, well, your former client right. among them. Yes. Uh, and they were uh, very, very angry about that and very, very bitter. And it was, you know, it was a, it was, it was a make America great avant la lettre. It was, it was the Trump wave four years ago. And you could just see that anger and rage then. And uh, it was really sort of shocking 
to me how how angry and alienated people were and how their view of the Constitution or constitutional culture was such that basically the Constitution guaranteed that they get theirs. And if they're not getting theirs, then something is profoundly wrong. And that was something I think that we have seen come to fruition uh, since the year since then. Yeah, the president doesn't seem all that fluent in the Constitution. No, no, a lot of people aren't. He does. He shares that in common with not just, I should say, nobody knows anything about the Constitution. We, 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 we would go up to people and say, well, what, tell me about the Constitution. What do you think? And they'd say, I love the Constitution. And, and you'd say, well, what do you love about it? And they'd say, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you'd say to yourself, well, Hard to argue on, against that's that. not on the Constitution. That's yes. a Declaration of Independence. But what's really interesting is I really became obsessed with, if nobody understands any of this, if nobody mm-hmm. understands how this actually works and how Supreme Court jurisprudence works and what the Bill of Rights does and what it doesn't do and so on and so forth, then how has it worked? And, uh, I mean, especially when, you know, these Tea Party people seem to be very much against it working. And and what I came to understand, it actually, uh, it's a story that I love to tell. The, the We went to this Tea Party rally, uh, which I've described, and it ended with uh, a video montage of patriotic stuff, including, of course, the famous Lee Greenwood, God Bless the USA. And they had the video, and they had the, the jets, and they had the baseball, and they had the apple pie, and Lee Greenwood's going, uh, to be an American. And we were all incredibly bitter and angry and alienated, and we were like, these people will be first up against the wall when the revolution comes. And me and my film crew, we were, this whole thing was rather ugly. The very next morning, we went to a citizenship um, ceremony in... Uh, in Chicago, just at the Federal Building of Congress. And it just worked out that way. And it was the most amazingly, I don't know, encouraging, patriotic yes, thing ever. Yeah. If you've ever anybody, been to anybody who's ever attended a naturalization. you, you got to go to one, because there were yeah. people from all over the country, excuse me, people from all over the world. 40 countries were represented that day. There were people from Africa and Ireland and, of course, Mexico and all the other places. And all these people had come together, and they were all becoming Americans that day. And, and what bound them together was not obviously national origin or language or cuisine or culture or anything, but this sort of general faith in, in, yeah. in democracy, in, in, in civic order, in the fact that we would all be subject to law and that we would settle our disputes not with violence but with uh, elections and the process of, of law and that yeah. if you lose an election, you don't go and attack the guy who beat you, you try to beat him the next time and all, all these things. And it was so encouraging. And, and at the end of this, they showed a video, again, starring your former client. And then they ended the video with Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. And they were the same video. It was like, you know, the Jets and the Apple Pie. And this time we were all like waving our flags. And like, yes, yes, yeah. it was fabulous. It was great. Never felt more patriotic than in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You've written another book. I have. Uh... And uh, called the incomplete book of running. Yes, there's there as compared to the complete book. Of, yes, exactly. Of, of running. Well, do you remember that book? I'm afraid not. A people in the '70s, you and I are old enough to remember that yes. was that Jim was like Fix. Jim Fix. Yes. That was the Bible of the big running boom in the '70s. Yeah, and uh, everybody had a copy, including my father. And this was long before I ever could read, ever could excuse me, read, ever could run, ever could walk upstairs without gasping, but I would take out that book and look at the pictures of the happy, thin people running and yeah. imagine what that could be like. And so uh, it's both an homage and a little bit of a satire that I've written my own. I want to uh, ask you about one uh, anecdote in yes. the book. Uh, you, you, Because this also was another Zelig it, yeah. moment, a tragic one, but you were running in the Boston Marathon. I was. And you finished just... Minutes ahead of the blast. Five minutes. 
Yeah, I, I w- uh, it's a long story, uh, basically, which I will summarize by saying uh, I, I, I wasn't wanted around in my family home. Uh, yeah. My marriage was breaking up in a bad way, so I was accepting invitations. Somebody called me up and said, hey, you run marathons. Would you like to run the Boston Marathon as a guide to a blind guy? And I'm like, yes, why not? So I went off. I guided a guy named William Greer, and we ran the Boston Marathon that day. And uh, he had a tough race, but he managed to gut it out, and we crossed the finish line, and we were sort of standing there gasping for breath and celebrating our achievement when, boom, the bombs had just had went off like 100 yards behind us. And uh, what's interesting about that day, among many, many, many other things, is that William didn't really want to run the last mile. He was dying. He was, like, cramping up in every way you could cramp up. But he gutted it out. He decided that he was going to run that last mile because you got to run the last mile of the Boston Marathon. So if he hadn't, you, you conceivably could have been right at we, the side of the blast. If you think about it, if we had walked instead of run, we could have been right there. So it yeah. was an interesting What did you day. see after the blast? Did you just take off? Or? Well, we it's weird because, you know, I was only 100 yards away, but we saw and further knew nothing. Uh, if you've ever been to a marathon, you know that the finish line is a big superstructure. Mm-hmm. It's got, you know, cameras and lights on it, towers and steel. And we were on the other side of it. So it was blocking our view of the carnage. So we didn't know exactly what had happened. We were hustled away by the staff who also didn't quite know what had happened, but something very bad had happened. And we also didn't have our phones. We just run a marathon. You don't carry your phone. And so none of us had any idea what had happened. So while the rest of the world was seeing these first pictures, we were blithely walking through the chute with Mm. increasing serious senses of dismay, but at the same time getting Gatorade and getting a banana. And it wasn't, I remember so vividly, we walked out and there was this siren and a Boston cop, like a classic Boston PD cop, overweight, big mustache, is sprinting down the street, his equipment jangling, yelling, get out of the street. So I don't know anything about overweight. No, 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 no. All of of our guys are all wearing spandex. But (laughs) this guy is like from, you know, George V. Higgins novel, and he's running down the street, and he's shouting for everybody to get the hell out of the way, clear the street. And I'm saying to myself, if that guy is running that fast, something really bad has happened. And, And that's when we began to get the news that there had been a bombing and people had been killed and et cetera, et cetera. What's clear from your book, which is satirical, but but also pretty revelatory, yeah. uh, is that running for you is not just a means of exercise, it's 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 therapeutic. Oh, God, yes. Uh, as people might have gathered, if they know anything about me, I spend way too much time in my head um, staring at You've dealt at with the... depression. Yep, absolutely, which I've talked about, which I, I, I sort of did as, as both a, an exercise in, in, in sort of confronting my own self, and also I hoped offering something to some other people. I had heard... It was actually Rachel Maddow who had talked about her own struggles with it. And I yeah, said we to myself, had a discussion with her right here about that. And, and, and when she did that, I was like, wow, that makes me feel a little better because Rachel Maddow is a, a genius. She is an amazingly accomplished person yeah. who I admire in every way. And if she struggled with it, I feel a little bit better in my, myself. And I realized that I could kind of pay that forward if I did the same. And a lot of people have come up to me, sometimes in person, sometimes over email, and said that, which is very gratifying. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it turned one of the weirdest things that happened to me is that I became uh, a fairly accomplished middle-aged athlete, which I never expected to ever happen to someone like me. I'm a, I'm a stubby, non-athletic, you know, bookish kid from the suburbs. Who, right, you were stubby. You're not stubby anymore. Well, uh, you're you're uh, buff now. Uh, oh yes, uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's I a podcast. That. I can say whatever can I say, want. Yes, exactly. No one will ever know. Here, let me flex a little bit for you're you. You're a radio um, guy. I'm a radio guy. No one yeah. will ever know. And so it, it, it and it turned out. I mean, I've become <clears> a, a tremendous advocate for people uh, of my ilk, uh, people who spend way too much time in their heads, to get the hell outside. 
and to do something physical. It doesn't have to be running, although running uh, has the particular advantage of it doesn't require any skill. Um, and and just get out of your heads and understand that we none of us were supposed to be living this way. We're, none of us were supposed to be living in a world in which we just you know use our bodies to move our heads from this screen to that screen to that you know the size of the screen varies during the day. Um, and I think that's bad for us. I think that we were all born to be moving, and I'm a, a great advocate of that. And it doesn't matter if you ever run a marathon or if you win anything. I've never won anything. Uh, but it does matter, I think, to get people out of their heads and back into their bodies. And I've become an advocate. You're still for that. running marathons? I, well, I haven't. I ran the New York Marathon last fall as a guide for another blind runner, which was gratifying. Uh, I have no plans to run one this year, which is sad, I, just because I haven't been able to train in the way that I have. But I, I, I run races and I still get out there every week and every day when I can. I mentioned earlier this uh, uh, my observation that comedians often are people who have struggled. Yes. Uh, I mean, Robin Williams famously, famously was an example of that, but I think he's not that except um, exceptional. No, no. I have a friend who was been Robin, who was friends with Robin Williams in the old days in the '70s in the comedy scene in San Francisco, and he says Robin Williams. The thing was, he couldn't stop. He'd get off stage and he'd still be doing routines at the bar, and they wanted to say to him, "My friend, did Robin, you can stop. You don't have to perform anymore." And that is something that I think is endemic to a lot of people in my line of work. That if they're not making people laugh, if they're not doing a routine, if they're not performing, they don't know what to do with themselves, which is nice for those of us who gets to watch them perform, but it's not a good way to live. And for you yourself, uh, did, you, did, you, did you find yourself at times doing the same thing? Oh, Lord, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it bothers me that we've been sitting here talking for more than half an hour and you've only laughed like three times because I've noted. And, and <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really tough, uh, I think. And, we and put it, a laugh track in I after, appreciate so that. Thank you. And, and, it, and, it, and it's just something that it's it's frankly it's something that I've been struggling with uh, that I think a lot of people struggle with. Those of us who were raised uh, or through natural inclination to see validation in external uh, mm-hmm. external marks, you know, getting right. medals, you know, do you, how did well did you do in this test? What college did you get into? What grades did you get one after you? Got I into? understand this because my mother used to always ask me, well, what did they think? Exactly. What did they think? It was not how did you feel. It was like what did people think about you? Exactly. And, and that, you know, and that for some people, it can be a tremendous spark toward, you know, I mean, uh, maybe because, as you say, I've, I've been around and done a fair bit. And it's probably because I've, I'm never quite satisfied with, you know, the, the, well, they liked me yesterday, but what do I do today to make sure they like me? And that, I guess, can be positive in terms of the work it creates. Yeah, but it's crazy making. It is totally crazy making and it's no way to live. And uh, and what I've what I've learned as I've gotten a little older is that those people who are constantly trying to do the next thing, to achieve the next thing, who are dissatisfied, and you may admire them, but you don't want to hang out with them because they're crazy making. They're, they can't relax. They, they constantly are worried about the next thing. They can't just be in the moment. And I've realized that the people I've actually wanted to hang out with were like the relaxed people and the happy people right. who didn't need you to approve of them, who were happy to see you and, and didn't need you to be anything for them to, to, to fill that day's hole. And so when I realized that those are the people I actually wanted to like be with, I've, I've been trying to work on being that person, which is maybe in its own way a paradoxical way of trying to get other people's approval, but <laughs> I think it's a healthier attitude. Maybe you are in your head a little too much. You think so? You yeah. think so? I think I better go for a run. But you just, um, but you, as you, you just remarried. I did. 
and I'm very, very happy. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 I was at a point, and I write about this in the book without giving away a lot of details, where for someone who had been expected, as we've said, from a very early age to be a vast success, who had felt that my job was to be a vast success, found myself approaching the age of 50 as a complete failure, i.e. everything that I was supposed to achieve in terms of a family and being a father and a husband had just blown up. And but you did achieve by that time, significant professionals. Success. Yeah, yeah, but who cares about that? We have to focus on what I did wrong, David. Don't you understand? Mm-hmm. How and much did the one sac- did you sacrifice the one to the other? That's something I think a lot about. Uh, I had always, of course, like a lot of us, uh, really was worried about you know what what you know, what grade I would achieve in life. You know, however you want to manage that. And I think that certainly uh, I sacrificed a little bit of my family, maybe more than a little of my family life to that, which is something, of course, I profoundly regret. Yeah. But it was really... Join the club. Yeah, I know. A lot of us... Uh, you know, it's weird. I, I know a lot of people who struggle with that because a lot of my friends are artists who are touring musicians or who are out on the road or whatever, and they all struggle with that. Um, and so it's been, an interesting, it's been an interesting exercise to sort of move on from that. To, and a lot of that has been like understanding that, yeah, some really terrible... Some, a lot of stuff was taken from me um, that I had wanted to hang on to. And it has been a bit of a struggle uh, to realize that sometimes you just have to let stuff go. You, 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 you talk about um, uh, being estranged from your kids yes. as part of this acrimonious divorce. Yes. Has that, have you re- been able to repair those relationships? Um, the short answer is no. But uh, I really hope to. Uh, you live in hope. And uh, for, because of that, it's it's kind of important that I just not talk about it. Of course, it. yeah. Because my kids are my kids, and they have their own lives. Yes. And, and th- you know, they're going to be, I hope, making their own decisions and coming to their own understanding of what their childhood was like and who I am and what our relationship is. And... If in my only message to them, I doubt that they'll find their way to this podcast, but the only message to them is that I love them, and whenever they decide that they'd like to talk to me about anything, I will be here. Well, let me just say um, that we've talked about depression a lot and struggles a lot here because um, I lost a parent to suicide, and, um, and I had the same experience you did, which is that uh, when I years years later than i should have when i talked publicly about it for the first time actually wrote about it um the inf- import uh, the uh, influx of letters and calls and emails from people who were dealing with mental illness or had lost someone mm-hmm. to it or dealing with depression uh was overwhelming to me i had never gotten in all the years i was in the public eye that sort of response and and most of it was just thank you for sharing your story because it made me feel like I wasn't alone one of the things that all of us deal with is there really is and this and you can you can attribute it to the facebook culture where people are posting cheerful pictures all the time and trying to show everybody how great their life is there really is a taboo of talking about these issues um despite our confessional culture one of the things you find out is if you something terrible happens to you, um, an acrimonious divorce, a suicide, a mental illness, or even as we find out in the current moment, sexual assault, it's hard to talk about it because you, you feel with some reason that people really don't want to hear about it, that that's not 
what or that somehow it is a it is a blemish on, right, you, on, exactly. on the person you love or on yourself to acknowledge right. these things. I mean, I'm sure for you, with the loss of your father, it, it, you know, uh, everybody else is sort of talking about their father and their parents and how great it is, and I'm going to go see my pain, you know. And you can't talk about that because of what happened. I, I have the same feeling about, you know, cheerful stories of, of, of families and, and happy marriages. It's just, and you feel like somehow you're you fail. Like there's this something that every human being does and every human being succeeds at and something was so wrong with you that you couldn't manage that. And you'd better just keep that quiet and and just carry your shame around with you. And that's applicable to so many things. There's so many women these days in this moment talking about how being sexually assaulted made them feel that way. There was an amazing thing on the Daily Podcast just the other day in which Michael Barbaro talked about a woman who was assaulted in high school and how she ended up trying to kill herself. And you'd say to yourself, well, you didn't assault anybody. You didn't do anything wrong. But she felt there was something so profoundly wrong with her that this had happened in her life that it must reflect terribly on her. And of course, she was an adolescent at the time. You're not feeling so clearly. But at the same time, that is something that's endemic to all of us, that we take these these tragedies and we interpret them emotionally or internally as failures. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to let people, and, and, and the same thing happened to me. I started talking about what happened with my family or other struggles and people came out and they were like, oh, thank you. If it happened to you, then maybe I'm not that much of a freak as I thought I was. Yeah. Well, Peter Sagal, thank you for making us laugh, but also thank you for uh, making us think. Well, that is that is what I do, because like all professional comedians, what I really want to be doing is being taken seriously. <laughs> I know, it's it's sad. It's just, it's like, you know, can I just be happy? Apparently not. Yeah, well, uh, we are the beneficiary of your angst. So <laughs> At least it's doing you. somebody yeah. some good. <laughs> thank you. Good thank to you. be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.